before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 18. As always, we're joined by the three amigos. We got Rich Diaz, the Tom Brady of Macro with a fresh haircut of Acorn Macro Consulting. And of course, everyone's favorite boomer, Mike Check, Keith Dicker with Icecap Asset Management. Uh, welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, yeah, we're going to try to steer clear of the political discussions after some feedback from last week's episode regarding the trucker convoy and whatnot uh, and our unacceptable views. Um, but as I said to one loyal listener of the show, I said, if you, um, if you try to please everyone, you will please nobody. So we will always speak our minds on the show. And I think, to be honest, I think that's why people actually listen to the show because uh, if it was plain Jane vanilla, you, you probably wouldn't tune in. So, um, but you know, I, I'm going to, we're going to, I said I wouldn't talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it for two minutes, and then I'm going to pivot um, because the, the only reason why is because we actually we've bought everyone really commenting now on this sort of trucker shutdowns, and more so from an economic macro perspective, which is what the show is all about. We had our fellow Bank of Canada governor, everyone's favorite Tiff Macklem, uh, coming out uh, a couple days ago, basically saying that should these sort of lockdowns and congestions happen, uh, which are shutting down some of the supply chains. Uh, we've had what Toyota Ford, uh, recently coming out and saying that they had, they're pausing manufacturing just because, you know, because they are, because they can't get their, their supplies, um, that this, this, you know, could impact the path forward for the economy and, and slow growth and whatnot. So in my, my view is basically, Tiff Macklem is almost looking for any kind of excuse. These central bankers in general are looking for any kind of excuse not to raise interest rates. Um, Keith, I don't know if you have any quick comments on that uh, as you pour your coffee there, but I don't know if you have any quick comments from Tiff there. Well, first of all, for the, the, the story strutter, because I know everyone loves my stories. This is not even an old story, quick story. A few days ago, I, I was working as a knock on the door and it was uh, one of the, the career guys. And look what they dropped off at my desk. Oh, Did wow. Did we show this yet? I know. It's a real nice uh, Looney Hour mug. For everyone in the podcast are listening. Uh, it's a Looney Hour. It's, it's our logo on it. It was, it was sent to me from Steve. And uh, I think Rich received one as well. But my, I Rich, got mine, mine too. Was, mine was actually filled with loonies. I don't think yours was. <laughs> but mine was. Uh, so speaking little of little loonies, <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll be, we'll, be sell, well, full, we'll be selling those on the website. Fifty dollars a mug, inflation. Um, you can it's okay. The prices are transitory. <laughs> no, but we will probably once we get the website up for the Looney Hour. Realistically, we're hoping to get some swag out there, but uh, we'll we'll update you on that. Anyways, Keith, take it away. Okay, but there's another quick story, and it's, it's about to do with money in a bag of money. 
down in uh, in in Bermuda a few years back. Uh, one of my one of my good mates there. He was moving, so you have a, a moving house sale. You sell everything you own. And this this guy is an Irishman, really funny guy. He had a, had a bag of uh, change, and uh, he was this you know like you no know, Ziploc bags, and he had on the the bag fifty dollars, I think. And this this young guy comes in on in his phone, his scooter, and he bought a fishing pole, and he's I see him over there holding the bag of money. And I said to Dave earlier, I said, "What are you selling a bag of money?" He said, "Yeah, it's a good laugh." I said, "He said, I don't think there's like eighteen bucks." And I'm looking at him like. Jesus, this is at least 200 bucks there money. He said, no way. Anyway, so this young guy, he comes back home and says, I'm going to buy a bag of money as well. So I, th- I think he paid 50 bucks for the bag of money and, and the fishing pole. And uh, we got a good laugh at it. And about an hour later, the kid comes back in and he says, yeah, uh, do you have any more money for sale? <laughs> the hell is going on in Bermuda? I know, but I think this ties into you know to the Bank of Canada here. Uh, you know, they're in the they're in the business on. of trying to sell. Well, they're in the business of trying to sell money and trying to sell stability and everything like that. And you know, they got absolutely skewered there a couple of weeks ago when, when they didn't raise rates. And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's now opening the door. Saying, yeah, maybe you know we're still going to raise rates, but we're going to have to wait a little bit before we do it. Because of what's happening here with you know economics and on the uh, you know the, the, the supply side that that's happening in Canada, but we'll talk a lot more about that because really though it's central bank policy, uh, it's it's being moved around by inflation, and I think the Americans had an inflation number this morning. Was that right? Yeah, Rich, yep. take 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 it away for us in terms of uh, the the actual details as the Tom Brady of macro. Sure. Is supposed okay. to do, but basically, yeah, to preface everybody here, um, 7.5% year-over-year growth in the CPI inflation basket in the U.S. And Rich, I believe that was a 40-year high or something along those lines. Yeah, so- yeah, 40-year high, more or less, um, 37, 38, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, so what was expected, it was also more than expected. So that was interesting. So it was, and that's often when you're looking at these numbers, it's, it's about expectations rather than the actual number. Um, so it was expected to be 7.3. Um, it was 7.5, as Keith said. So 0.6 <laughs> month over month, which is quite quite the move. A couple of highlights from that. Um, it was driven by food, um, energy, as you can imagine, with oil prices going up. Hopefully we'll touch on that later. Um, and shelter, which is something I've been on the shelter train for a long, long time. Remember, shelter is a large part of the CPI basket in the US and in Canada. So it's about... 46%, 40, sorry, 41.6% of core and about 33% of the headline uh, basket and core and sorry, and health and shelter went up to 4.4%. So, and that keeps rising and I would expect it to keep rising. Um, there's a couple, I'm happy to get into that as to why, but also food rose nearly a percent month on month. And again, we've said this before, and I'll just repeat myself again, which is these are the headline sort of aggregate figures. So when people say, oh, you know, it's we, how can you believe those, you know, those numbers? It's probably much higher. I agree with you. It's probably much, much higher, which is um, scary for people on a fixed um, income. It's scary for people who aren't necessarily seeing uh, their wages rise as much. Um, and you know, I think that there's more to come, uh, there's more to come for two reasons. One, I think just the, um, the base effect still has to fully pass through. Um, and so I think the comparables, you know, the comps, as we say in the finance world, I think that you, we're sort of waiting until the, 
March, April, May months for really for inflation to start to, to peter out. And then the other thing is, um, and the shelter component, which again is a, is a lion's share of the CPI basket in the US and in Canada. Um, I don't think that that's going down at all uh, for two reasons. One, there's no supply. Um, so rents, vac- rental vacancies are really tight. And, and then the house prices and rents in general are, are still quite high. Um, yes, mortgage rates are going up. And yes, mortgage applications and refinancing have fallen. However, um, yeah, that, that, that shelter component is, is, is something to really, really watch out for. I tweeted about it um, earlier this morning. Um, but yeah, that's it for me. One, one thing on the tip Macklin thing, just in his defense, believe that just to be fair, and I try to be as fair as possible in, in Macklin's defense, the bridge that they're blocking, I can't remember the name of it, doesn't really matter, um, is a key um, supply line with the United States. Um, something probably Trudeau should have thought about. But be that as it may, it's something about 300 million. I could be wrong on this number, but I read it somewhere and I'll just take it at face value. It's about 300 million a day worth of trade goes along that bridge from the United States. So that's about 9 billion a month. And just to put into context, our trade with the US um, is about 45 billion a month. So it's about, you know, 20 odd percent um, of all of Canada's trade is on that one bridge that's getting blocked so he might have a little bit of a point but anyway steve (laughs) yeah no just to kind of very well put uh just to kind of summarize that so basically you were saying the shelter component is makes up like roughly just over 30 percent of the basket of, of, of consumer price inflation yeah i find it kind of interesting that again shelter and at least in the u.s you're saying it's just over four percent uh, underreported in my, in my estimate, based on my view of watching us home prices. And I know rent growth has, has been following suit. Um, and then you were talking on, um, so you got this, the consumer price inflation basket there, that hurdle rate, cause you've got CPI at seven and a half and you, I mean, I think everyone could make an argument again, when you've got shelter at four, which is arguably much higher, like the hurt, what's, what's like the hurdle rate. Cause we're talking about like fixed income. Right. And I just like, I keep thinking about um, like my dad who God bless his soul watches the show, regular listener. Um, but you know, he just recently retired and like, he's, you know, he's telling me, Oh, I've, you know, I've just went to the bank got you know, one of the advisors there is, is talking about, you know, liquidating one of his GICs. And this guy's got like, I think he was saying his GIC was getting like 0.25%. And it's like, and this is like someone that's retired. And so, yeah, okay, inflation in Canada is arguably, I think the most recent print is like, what, 5%. I would argue it's probably closer to the US, which is seven and a half, which again is, let's pro- call it a hurdle rate of like 10%, basically that's like a tag. I mean, this guy's basically just got taxed roughly like nine and a half percent on his money. And if yeah. you start compounding, like obviously inflation is probably not going to continue at this rate, but if you start compounding that over five, 10 years. I mean, so yeah, let me quickly just say that. So number one, so what you're saying there's real, real interest rates are negative. So what does that mean? Um, it's just that inflation is higher than the bond yield. Okay. Um, meaning you're not, you need to run. So you're running fast and you're go and you're falling behind. Right. But the other thing that's really, so that's, so that's what you're trying to outline. Um, you know, we've made it very clear on this show that we hate bonds. Um, <laughs> I, I stand by that view. Um, what's another thing that's really interesting is as the bond. So that's, that's if you're just holding the bonds relative to inflation, 
The other thing is what, what, what I've seen and something I want to point out to the listeners today is that the bond index in general is starting to fall. So the global bond index is what I look at. You guys can look it up online. It's called the IBOX, I-B-O-X-X, US dollar terms. It doesn't really matter. They, I mean, they're all sort of the same, but it tries to aggregate the entire like, sort of global bond market. It's got a duration of about seven years. I mean, these are all sort of technical things. But the point is, is that that index, which is what I track and, and what I talk about with my clients, is down 7% from the peak. And so, which is includes your, your, um, your yield. So the coupon that you clip every year or semi-annually or quarterly or whatever. And, um, and that's in, in nominal terms. So you can imagine how much money, if you're holding a bond index, um, how much money you've lost, number one, in nominal terms um, over the last, let's say, 18, two years. And then in real terms, you've lost even more money because obviously inflation's ripping and, you know, this is basically falling. Um, and then, and so it's just, it's just really incredible. These bond, we've talked about this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again. These bond, bonds are, in my view, they're, they're worthless. Um, and it's just, it's really a shame. So let's get, let's get the money manager in here. Uh, Keith, what, I mean, what do you do? What do you do in this situation? I mean, how, how are you, how do you, how do you view this? How do you have this conversation with clients? I mean, as I know, Rich hates bonds. I don't like bonds. I'm a millennial. I don't even know what the hell those are. Um, Keith, uh, take it away. Well, first of all, uh, Rich and Steve and everyone else out there, you know, all, all you young guys out there, it's called the ambassador bridge guys you, you should know that <laughs> you are correct it is the busiest most important economic related bridge in canada so remember that the ambassador bridge do they play hockey out. on the bridge <laughs> a lot of hockey flows back and forth on that bridge absolutely uh yeah so guys this is you know sort of turning in so what i love about markets is that almost everyone they start with the stock market and then they end with the stock market you know, that's, that's all, that, that's where they go. But the world drives on, it, it's driven by credit and credit is really people borrowing money. And when you borrow money, you're issuing a bond. So countries borrow money, provinces, states, cities, companies, households, everyone's borrowing money all the time. And uh, what's happening now is that the growth rate in borrowing and debt it is faster than the GDP growth. It is now actually, because rates have been so low for so long, it's actually growing twice as fast as GDP. So GDP has to, so to get the debt bubble under control without it popping, the, the global economy has to start growing really super duper fast. That has to happen. And at the same time, it has to grow in a way that interest rates do not go up. And you can't do that. It, it just doesn't reconcile. So again, like, so just, this is a, I saw an article in The Economist, I think it was this morning. Uh, last year, over 10, so there's $300 trillion in debt outstanding around the world. So 300 trillion, like it's, it's enormous. Last year, $10 trillion was paid out in interest. The Economist is expecting that if, Interest rates increased by 1% over three years. That's it. So we've already gone up 1% in what, Rich? Three months maybe on the yeah, 10 year? Yeah. yeah. So like a gradual trickle higher of 1% over three years. The amount of interest to be paid is going to increase to $16 trillion. So we, we work this out as a percentage of GDP 
or for everyone who's listening to the show, a percentage of your income that's that's coming into your house. So everyone's working, money's coming in. You know, if you're a realtor in, in Kitslano, you got a lot of income coming in. If, yeah. And um, but, you know, most households, they have a steady income. So let's just say, for example, right now, 12% of your income is being used to pay on your interest on your, your mortgage and credit cards, whatever else you have. That, that That's going to shoot up very quickly to 15, 17, 20%, depending on how high interest rates go. So think about it again. So that's just from people that are borrowing and paying off the money. From an investment perspective and the conversation that we have with everyone, which leads into the question that, that you, you were just asking about the bond market, it's a lot of risk in the bond market. So I always tell people, and I have the same conversation with, with all clients and investors from, you know, in across Canada and on the US, Europe, you name it. Um, right now, the bond market, it's, it is what we call an asymmetrical risk return opportunity. Your upside is say 2% and your downside is, you know, minus five, minus 10, minus 15%. And then if you get into like the really smart world, like the, the way Rich was talking there, if you put what is the real return on it, because inflation is higher as well. And then ensure after tax, like this is a one-way highway investing in the bond market right now. And, and you're going in the wrong direction if you're jumping into that market. Off the so, bridge, one might say. Yeah, there you go. The bridge. You, I like that. Eh? You brought that in. Uh, now that's not to say bridges, uh, sorry, bridges, uh, bonds don't add any value because they can, they can certainly help you, uh, you know, cushion some blows. And then, and, you know, for any institutional people out there, uh, in the consultants, you know, uh, you, you're, you're buying long-term bonds, not for the return. You're buying it to offset your, your liability side and on the pension payments and whatever, but it is Steve, it, it's not looking very good in that world. So what you want to do as an investment manager is find other investments that can also produce income, but that are going to be to a different drum than say the stock market or, or the bond market and everything. But uh, we'll get more into the, into the bond market as well. But uh, one key thing that Rich was talking about that he didn't use this word, but I, but I, wit, I, I will, uh, it's credit spreads. Uh, the credit spreads have the potential here to, to really blow out. And then that's, that's the, so I think that the bond market index that you mentioned, I don't think there's a lot of credit in it. I think it's mostly sovereign debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so most of the bond funds that Canadians are investing in, um, there's, there's corporate debt in there. And then the average Canadian, if you're always, you know, if you're walking into your bank or, you know, mutual fund sales guy you're, you're dealing with, uh, your, your, your bond fund, it probably also holds high yield bonds or junk bonds. And, and that stuff is completely exposed to credit spreads blowing out wider. And, you know, that's the stuff that we get excited about right now because it, it's creating opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, I think let's just call it what it is. I mean, it's a global sovereign debt bubble. Like, that's just it. It's what it is. Like, it's it, you know, you run those numbers. I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually going to talk about it as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, going from global interest payments rising from 10 trillion to 16 trillion just with by a hundred basis point move. I mean, it kind of tells you you're basically in like. I mean, it's almost a. It, it's a failing system. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme. Um, but uh, I mean, that's, that's why like, it's always funny. Cause I always get these, even last week did a couple interviews on the housing market for just mainstream media outlets. Right. And they're always, and they're always question is like, well, like, I don't get it. Like house prices are rising. Like what's causing it. What's where's the money coming from? I'm like, the only thing that matters is like 
global bond market. Like that's, I mean, if you've got, I mean, that's basically your risk-free rate, right? I mean, if that, as long as, so long as you have real negative interest rates of, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent, I mean, you're just going to continue to get egregious amounts of capital flowing into real estate because it's just looking for a place to park itself. And so, you know, again, and then you get the average person that doesn't know what the hell is going on and they just start saying, ah, I got to point the finger at somebody. So I'm going to point it at, it must be that guy that it must be that real estate investor. He's the problem. And it's like, no, the problem is, is that you've got a global sovereign debt bubble that, you know, we're trying to keep this thing together with, with a bunch of duct tape. And, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's fixable. I don't think it's solvable. And I think we've, we've talked about it on the show before. Um, speaking of which alternative assets, as, as Keith was talking about, we had uh, KPMG, KPMG Canada, one of our largest accounting firms there just recently added Bitcoin and Ethereum onto their balance sheet. So, uh, you know, I mean, what a, what a time to be alive. Keith is very upset, shaking his head right now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Rich. But um, I'm 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 super pumped. Obviously, you guys know I'm I've got the laser eyes there on Twitter. So uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty big move to see a massive accounting firm add that uh, to their balance sheet. Keith joked if it was on the asset or the liability side, but. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really, I, I love, I love the, the, those kinds of things are like, I like schisms and breaks and, and inflection points. And I think we're sort of reaching one. Um, I mean, who knows um, if I was a central banker, I'd be doing everything in my power to, um, to, to not let those kinds of things happen. Um, I think um, it shows you how sort of behind the curve they are with respect to that. Um the part of being a government is that you have a monopoly on money creation, right? Um, you have it in several ways. You can tax people, you can run inflation really high. Um, you can ban certain transactions. You can ostensibly try to investigate money laundering, although our government seems to not care about that. Um, uh, but the point, you, you, the point is you, you have a captive audience, you have citizens, and then and I think the, 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 to me, what's really fascinating and should be, which should feel like an existential threat for these central governments is that for the first time, probably, I don't know, ever, you have this like all genuinely alternative asset, like outside of um, the normal way of doing business. And, you know, who knows who will be the winner, whether it be Bitcoin or Dogecoin or, or you know, Mousecoin or, or Applecoin or whatever. But like, the point is, is the idea that they're, I, I can't speak to who's going to win, who's going to lose. I just think from a stepping back as like a, a lover of economic history and financial market lore and all these things, I think it's really cool. I think it's like a great time to be alive. I know it's not very, I don't have much more to contribute than that. Uh, Keith? No. Or Steve? I, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, cause I think there's a lot of people that like aren't necessarily familiar with the space and like, and I'm not the expert in the space, but I do, do a lot of research, obviously for millennials. So I have to kind of like this stuff. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I think people have to understand, like, there's, it's not just like a, a lot of these, yes, there's like Dogecoin is just a coin for speculating, essentially, there's not really any utility value, but like, you do have a lot of programs, like, for example, like Ethereum, like these central bank digital currencies, for example, are basically being built on that platform. So like, just so people understand, like these, like a lot of these tokens have zero utility and there's a lot of them that are actually 
going to be functioning in your real life scenario. I think, I think Ethereum's uh, settlement layer, I think they settled like $6 trillion worth of transactions last year. Um, and like I said, central bank digital currencies will be built on some of this tech. So um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see sort of how that plays out. Keith, I don't know if you have any uh, comments on that, but. Uh, how do you spell it? It's <laughs> B I okay. Uh, so guys, just from a market perspective, uh, you know that that space did incredibly well in a, in a very short time frame, and the only re- reason that happened is that all this capital was gushing into it. So supply uh, was nowhere near enough to keep up the demand. So the the price of any market is is going to go up. And now a lot of that's been coming out. Now it's, you know, it's sort of treading water here, depending on, you know, which, you know, most people are using Bitcoin, of course, as, you know, the benchmark and for the whole crypto world. So I do know a lot more about it than, you know, we, we like to, to joke about. Uh, but, you know, but, you know, we, you know, we, we've talked about central bank digital currencies before and, you know, how that's going to come together. Uh, but with KPMG announcing, hey, you know, we have some this in our balance sheet right now. It's, again, the more that the established world adopts crypto, you know, they're investing in it, allocating towards it. Um, I mean, that just means it, it is here to stay. It's not going to get eliminated, wiped out. I'd be, I'd be shocked if the Federal Reserve was afraid of Bitcoin. I, I really don't. I mean, they're not afraid of gold. They're not afraid of crypto. You can't uh, buy one, chocolate bars with gold. <laughs> and I, I still don't think anyone's going to be think, buying. Like, yeah, people keep you went in to buy it. Not rep- Go ahead. Yeah, but, you know, if you go into sort of try to buy something, one of my friends, uh, he joked, he tried to buy something. This is Bitcoin wallet there a, a while back, and he said, he said like the spread on doing that purchase, it was like something five times what it would have cost him to do it otherwise. So anyway, we're we're not there yet, but from a pure investment perspective, with increasingly more players allocating capital towards it, that, that's incredibly positive. Um, whether I'll be right or wrong, I do sort of envision the space as being similar to the whole tech bubble in like 99, 2000. Uh, all the capital went in like hand over fist first. Like I remember again, because, you know, I was I was around back then. But like if you just announced you had a website all of a sudden, like Canadian Tire, like the most most iconic Canadian brand out there. And their stores, you know, it's, it's a shit show. Like, it's so disorganized. And every single retail out, you go in. And all of a sudden, a they announce. <laughs> I know. But yeah, it's, it's a great place, though, right? But we all spend time there. But obviously, like, if they announce we now have a website, like, the stock doubles in value. And, of course, it took a few years later for, you know, the true value of, you know, all this innovation that was taking place. Now, I assume that's what will happen in, in this space as well. So it's not something to be ignored uh, but it's certainly not a market that I would I would be aggressively going into in, in any way. Uh, Rich, would you have your, your hand oh, up? Sorry, sorry, I just want the to young, say. <laughs> the young student in the back of the class has a question. Yes, sir. Uh, I just, I, one thing I forgot to mention, which I thought was really, really bullish for Bitcoin, was that um, paradoxically, the fact that the U.S. wants to regulate it, which is, I think, to me, what I've been waiting for for a long time. Um. I think that that gives it um, in the same way that KPMG put in putting crypto on its balance sheet gives it an air of legitimacy that it may or may not have had before. I think if the U S starts to regulate, um, regulate that market and, and sort of get some, I don't know whether it's the sec or whoever is going to do it, but as, as you start, as you start to build in like the statutes and the law books and it starts to be 
I think it, it, it becomes like a, a much more attractive and viable um, place to hold, um, I don't know, your wealth, a unit of account. Um, and, and I think it's just a really fascinating, yeah, that, that was that, that was just recently actually when I did that. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. What, what, yeah, what, no. what the regulators, I just, yeah, just to add, like I, you know, we are a regulated entity We're you know, we're, we're licensed in Canada for stuff as well as down the U S to do stuff. Um, so the whole thing about it being regulated in the U S you have to understand in the U S there are multiple regulators and it's a big power grab for, for each one. So there was a lot of discussions taking place behind the scenes because they, you know, the SEC would want it, the CFTC slash NFA would want it and, and so forth. So, you know, it, it, yeah, being regulated is good, but it's, it's also don't underestimate governments in the way they're set up and structured. Everyone is always looking to increase their market share. And so as soon as all of a sudden a new, you know, investment pops up on this, on the scene, you know, you all of a sudden you're a regulator, you wake up and say, wait, I need that. Because all of a sudden then your budget increases, you know, your power increases and, and whatnot. But it, again, guys, like this, this will be around for a while. And, you know, I, I, again, it, it's not going to, anyone who's thinking, you know, they're going to, you know, double their money every month for 18 months and then they'll never have to work and everything. I, I think that might be a bit um, optimistic on the way it might play out. You can't, can, yeah, thanks a lot. We just lost a whole bunch of listeners now. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I think you're, I think you're right there. I think that, uh, you know, as a, someone that is a astute observer of the space, I think that there's a lot of this stuff that, as Keith mentioned, a lot of it is going to be sort of dot com. A lot of these tokens will go, you know, to zero. And I think you're going to have a lot of the blue chips that will continue on and, and do exponentially well. Um, but, um, yeah, it's funny enough, actually, of course it comes out of Vancouver, which is the, the sort of mortgage lending hot space, but, uh, there's actually a company in Vancouver that did originated the first ever, first ever mortgage in the metaverse. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's now mortgages being issued, uh, in the metaverse. So I, again, I think that is also going to be a space to watch, but I think it's extremely early. There's going to be a lot of, uh, it's kind of like the the modern gold rush, right? Like you're almost better off shell- selling the, the picks and shovels and whatnot. But uh, um, I, I have one more comment. I think it's, it's important. To, and again, it's, it's, it's just to share with everyone how the world works here. So the older guys around the world, you know, like myself, we're the ones that are, that have a big influence on where capital is going to go. And then all the younger kids out there, you know, you guys are coming with the, the great ideas and, and stuff like that. For this metaverse stuff, the mortgage product in, in the metaverse world, <laughs> alternative <laughs> universe, whatever you want to call it. Uh, for that stuff to really kick in, you need the older people who are in charge of capital for them to say, yeah, you know what, we're going to start allocating money to that space. And so that's what I mean that it, you know, by the time older money starts going to the space, you know, that, that first initial ramp, may, that opportunity might be gone. But people who are fiduciaries to, to other people's wealth and savings, we, we don't aggressively go into new ideas on, on the ground. Up. That, that's something that it's, it's, it's very aggressive investing and some, some places do and everything, but the majority of investment money around the world 
like you know we like we're pretty conservative and we like to wait for things to play out and and that's just the way things would work so so anyone you know if you, you know you're younger and you're investing in this space just have patience with it like let let it play out and don't get too disappointed or too excited because it, it will take a time but when it does start to work when you say big money like you know KP, kpmg saying they're going into it and stuff like that that's when you realize okay yeah like now this is starting to reach that not maturity scale but you know you're, you're getting in that space where people are taking it more seriously so that's my last thought for it no i mean i think that i think that's a perfect way to actually summarize um I mean, like, cause I, yeah, I think it's important to contextualize people like your wealth manager's job is to preserve like your capital. Like it's to preserve your wealth. It's not necessarily to like, it's not to make you rich. Right. So if you're going to take speculative bets on, you know, in the crypto space, like you can't really ask or expect your, your wealth manager to do that. It's not really their job. Their job is to, to again, to preserve and protect the, your capital that you've worked hard for over the last 10, 20 years, you know, either through working or building a business. So um, that's an important takeaway. Um, I actually just wanted to comment quickly on kind of our whole discussion here. I don't, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read this out. Um, Keith, our boy, Ritesh also posted this one uh, kind of following up to the conversation about, you know, interest, interest payments rising on a hundred basis point increase. Uh, So this is from Hirschman capital, uh, very well respected. Uh, firm Hirschman Capital. Uh, they say the Fed can halt inflation by hiking interest rates as it did to end the 1970s inflation, which everybody on Twitter seems to have an opinion on. Oh, this is the 1980s again. Watch Paul Volcker come out and start hiking rates to quell inflation, blah, 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 blah. So it goes from 1979 to 81, the Fed hiked the Fed funds rate by 100 basis points to curtail inflation. In 1979, however, U.S government's debt to GDP ratio was only 31% of GDP, and its budget deficit was only 2% of GDP. Thus, the hike's impact on the U.S. government's interest burden was manageable. By 1983, the budget deficit had increased only 4 percentage points to 6% of GDP. Today, a 300 basis point Fed funds hike, a fraction of the Fed's 1979 to 81 hike, um, or sorry, that was, a th- yeah, anyways, it was a thousand basis points they had increased back in the day. So they're saying today, if you were, the fed was just to raise rates by 300 basis points, a fraction of the feds, 1979 to 81 hike is easily foreseeable. Some would argue, I would disagree, but, uh, this would still leave the real fed funds rate lower than it has been for 98% of the last 67 years. Even some members of the perpetually optimistic, uh, FOMC, are projecting a 300 basis point Fed funds rate by 2024. Today, however, the U.S. government's debt to GDP ratio is 120%, and its budget deficit is forecast to be 7% of GDP this year. In other words, a 300 basis point hike should increase the budget deficit to 11% of GDP. Since 1991, all 18 other governments with deficits exceeding 11% of GDP and debt to GDP ratios exceeding 110% defaulted within two years. So let me just repeat that. A 300 basis point hike should increase the budget deficit to 11% of GDP. Since 1991, all 18 other governments with deficits exceeding 11% of GDP and debt to GDP ratios exceeding 110% defaulted within two years. 
Thus, the Fed could soon be trapped. Raising rates could trigger default and not raising them could leave inflation unchecked. That's no, that, so that was great. Um, I got to step in and take this. Um, <laughs> it, they're not going to do that. <laughs> inflation is the policy. Like This is what I think we all need to wrap our heads around. And one thing that Keith mentioned earlier, he's like, oh, you know, um, you know that 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 the that the that basically interest payments will grow relative to the size of your balance sheet, relative to the size of your um, inflows. There's another way that you can pay down debt, which is to not pay it down at all, or to inflate your way out of it. And I think that there's if you your nominal debt, it's you know a lot of these figures are 110% of debt to nominal GDP. Um, your deficit spending is deficit spending relative to nominal GDP. And if you allow, so right now I've, I've garbled this before, but the implicit price deflator is 7%. And what's, what is that? The IPD is the, you know, the inflation for the whole economy. And if you run, if you have a run rate of six, five, six, seven percent or even 4% for three or four years, those nominal debt to GDP numbers can come down really, really quickly as they did in the 1940s. I understand the growth was better. But the point is the idea that the U.S. is going to default in a, in a real way um, and hand over the reins of the global re- dollar reserve to either Russia or China or whatever it is, when really the, the more obvious, easier, less painful way is to just allow your nominal GDP growth to run hot, it's... I don't, I don't, I really don't understand the obsession, sorry to say, with the idea that the U.S. is going to default. It's not going to. Bondholders will just be holding an empty sack of worthless coins. Um, and, and I think that that's, and so how do you protect yourself? I think the market's telling you right now. Um, and I'm sure Keith has loads of really interesting ways to do that too. But I think that that's, there are different ways to default in debt. And I think that the, to me, this, it's kind of brutally obvious one to me is just to inflate your way out of it. I don't know if you guys have any pushback Keith, on that. Either. Yeah, no, no. Well, a pushback on half of it and a pull in. <laughs> I'm really witty today, by the way. Um, so, so first of all, sovereign debt, they default differently than companies and, and right. households, right? So uh, a country will default on the debt by, you know, taking that, two-year bond and extending it to a 200-year bond or uh, say it's supposed to pay out 5% a year, all of a sudden they, they say, you know what, we're going to only pay you 1% a year. So that, you know, they, they, keep, they just change the terms of it, which is still, it's technically a default, but it's different than if a household or a company defaults. Because when that happens, there's a permanent loss. You know, it gets marked on your, on your portfolio. So uh, I, I think, you know, that's where we're likely going to go. You're going to see sovereign debt defaults, but instead, like, for example, be Italy changing their 10-year bond to a 100-year maturity. Like and, Greece did, like Greece did a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And, and plus, they'll say, by the way, there's no secondary market. So you're, you know, you're stuck with it. That's where I suspect we're going to go. Uh, the whole thing about, you know, uh, you know it, it's, it's economic fairy tales that we're going to, you know, inflate our way out of our debt problem. Because, again, we talked about this before, and that the only way that happens is if you 
if you stop running deficits and you stop borrowing more than what you're you're collecting in. So you still have to pay down your debt or not borrow as much. But clearly, you know, as we just said, um, you know, the whole world continues to borrow way more. The growth of debt is faster than we're able to grow with income. So in trying to inflate the way out of it, it, it it's that's not going to work either. Okay. So I, I just want, yeah, I just want to return. Sorry, Steve, for you. Well, you I got confused. a question for you. You're, yeah. Well, yeah, because you're you're talking about, you know, and I, I certainly, I, I share the same view as you that, you know, you'll see some of these countries issue, you know, hundred hundred year debt. Do, I mean, is it in your opinion? Do you foresee? Do you see? Do you foresee a lot of countries? You know, Canada obviously being the, the number one here. Um, you know, doing this on the mortgage side as well, like in order to sustain this housing Ponzi that we've created. Um, you know, let's say, let's say the housing market here wobbles 10%, 20%. Do you foresee like 40 year mortgages coming back 50 year mortgages? Cause you have to like, I mean, it is what it is. Like it's a credit based financial system, especially the housing market. You, you need to continue to basically add more credit into the system, keep prices sustained. Do you, do you foresee that as well? Like over the next, not talking right away, but like over the next five to 10 years from now? No, no, not at all. They're not in Canada because the, the bank needs a comparable product to lay that risk off with. So the, the reason in Canada, you see mostly five-year five five year term mortgages, for example, uh, is because, you know, the Canadians, you know, sovereign debt market is, you know, it's just the five-year, 10-year, that, that's it. So for mortgage, for, for banks to issue, say, a 30, 40, 50-year term mortgage like amortization sorry is what i meant oh amortization is different yeah i mean they, they can absolutely do that but it, that that part doesn't matter to the banks because really they're worried about okay how do we lay off we have a five-year term you know built into it so let's say yeah. there's you know eight different terms to run yeah i meant it. i meant on the amortization side just to kind of to, to try to keep like, I mean, I just don't see how it's sustainable otherwise. I think we're, I think we're already at least in Vancouver. Can, yeah, Toronto. I can see it happening. However, I don't think we'll get to that stage. Like, I really think the probability of the world experiencing a, a severe debt crisis, it, it's gone from, you know, 10% up to 50%, you know, in, you know, five, zero percent, half a hundred or, or more. Like we're, we're on really thin ice here right now. I still don't think it's Canada will be the epicenter behind this. Canada will experience the wake because it will happen somewhere else. And I'm very consistent with, with my view on that because I, I think that's where we continue to go. Um, but it will. So if the, the only way we can go to these like 40 year amortization periods, all that stuff is if the world just slowly adapts to higher gradual interest rates and like with the way the bond market is trading today, like I'm watching it here, like this, this is an epic day in, in the bond world. Um, so let's just, let's just uh, shift the attention a, a little bit here, if it's okay, because I just want to revisit a conversation we had a few weeks back. And again, so we like to stay consistent and see if, if things are playing out. Because remember a few weeks back, um, you know, uh, we talked about on one of, one of our calls then that it's likely that Powell is now set up to be the fall guy. You know, we, we need a, a major disruption in financial markets. And, you know, then he'll leave and Brainyard will, will then come in as the head of the Fed. And they'll, you know, continue on 
you know, with, you know, more QE and lowering rates and everything like that. So right now, for example, the market is expecting the Fed funds rate to get up to almost 2%. I mean, that, that's where they're going. One of the quarter is baked into the cake. They're even suggesting we could get a 50 basis point, so a half a percent increase come at the next meeting on March 16th. That, that's yep. coming up. Um, and so I, so I like to look at the investment world as, you know, people don't believe this, but you, you want to buy low and sell high. Most people do the opposite, you know, that's, and it doesn't work out that well. Um, but you have to look at extremes in markets where it's trading. So we mentioned earlier, you know, how do you position portfolios? For example, in our portfolio, we had a holding there that's benefiting from the bond market selling off. So like we're making money here today on that. Like that's, that's been a great addition to our portfolio. Um, but we're also getting to points where these trends, they're now on their last legs. So using the, the baseball innings analogy, I think the right story might be in the eighth inning, seventh inning, something like that. Um, so right now, the 10-year in the U.S. is trading. It just went over 2% this morning, like, which is crazy because we were at 0.7% there in the middle of 2020, I think it was. Wasn't it, Rich? Yeah, your U.S. mortgage rates are basically back at pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, it, it's pretty aggressive here. Um, but so the story that we that I told there a few weeks back was, you know what, the, the, the Fed will try to start raising rates, stop QE, start doing QT, you know, they're buying the bonds, we're selling the bonds actually onto the market. And, uh, but to get to that point, you know, it, it's been suggested to me, and I, I know some pretty sharp guys that are very close to the Fed and, and whatnot. And one of them just shared a conversation with me yesterday saying, hey, like this, this is moving along as they expect it. You know, they, and they believe, you know, it'd be like a Fed slash treasury induced correction in the market. And it's playing out exactly as they thought at the long end of the curve. So like the 10 year bond is, is selling off. Uh, they see that happening. They also expect equities to come off hard and they haven't. Equities have not come off hard really hard. I mean, they could come down 10% easily. Some of them have. Quickly. Some of them have. Yeah. But that's like the, you know, I call it the ARC funds. Like some well, of those, no, I mean, Facebook's the, down 20%. I mean. Yeah. But I put that in that. I mean, like S&P 500, you know, like okay. add in your Procter and Gambles. And remember, I'm an old guy, right? I like buying companies. Okay, that I mean, there's something I want to touch on later there, but carry on. Yeah. Uh, so again, like this, this is this narrative continues to play out, and like the next sort of straw that can break the back here in the investment market, it's if uh, the high yield market snaps, because when the bond market is selling off right now, you know pension funds and mutual funds, like they're just losses on paper. Like there's no one getting hurt really, because they're hoping it will bounce back. But as soon as the high yield market snaps. Uh, money runs away from that very, very quickly. And then losses do occur. And remember what the Fed did for the first time in the history? It was very anti-Fed because they're not allowed to do it, but they did it anyway. They bailed out corporate debt back in, in March of, of 2020. So uh, again, right now the market has said, hey, the Fed is going to raise rates aggressively. So we said, hey, the Bank of Canada do the same thing, the Brits and everyone else. We're rapidly approaching the point where markets now will start anticipating, I actually saw it this morning in an article, the markets are now anticipating a rate cut. So they're anticipating rate hikes and then cuts down the road. So one of the best trades coming up right now, remember I mentioned the Canadian bankers acceptance contract there a couple of weeks ago? Yep. Yeah, so the, the, like the biggest market in the world to play, 
interest rate direction is the euro dollar contract in the US. And um, so that now is looking really nice. It's one do, of you wanna, do you want to explain that to the listener that maybe isn't quite familiar with the euro dollar market and give it in plain, very plain English? Yeah. And again, this is not an investment advice. We don't do that on the loony hour. Um, we don't know what we're and, talking about. Yeah, and this and 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 this is not a trade you can walk into RBC and do. This this is what you know big money is doing. You have access to it, <clears throat> but basically the instrument that tracks the Fed Federal Reserve overnight interest rate is called the Euro Dollar contract. It has nothing to do with euros or Europe. It's just just the name they have attached to it because it operates outside the the, the banking system, so to speak. But but right now that's priced at ninety eight dollars now this morning so it's effectively saying three months from now the u.s uh federal reserve funds rate will be at two percent and that, that's what it's saying this morning so if you take the view that hey we could get a sharp correction in the stock market coming up any minute now and the high yield bond market can trade off any any minute now all of a sudden the federal reserve and, and Powell or Powell exits. He says, you know, smell you later. And, and the new person comes in. All of a sudden now they have ammunition to do what, you know, you suggested Tiff Meglum is, is doing now coming up saying, you know what, we don't need to hike rates anymore. Then all of a sudden the price of that euro dollar contract, it just slingshots higher. So it's like, uh, you guys don't know evil can evil, do you? That, that's yep. too. Yeah, I know. Maybe to shoot him out of the cannon or maybe super Dave Osborne. Let's stick with the Canadian stuff. Needs to shoot Super Dave out of stuff. That's how it would be like. So can I? Would, can I take the? Shot higher. I, I, yes. have a, I would definitely yes. have a different view of Let's how go. this is all going to play it out. Start I have a pot. much more constructive view on growth. Um, I also have a pretty clear understanding of what's going to happen in the inflation world. Um, and so, given that inflation, yes, everybody's talking about it now. But there's two things that are really important. Number one is the worries about inflation, sort of. I think you should always discount the peak political froth. And if you look at, and we'll share this chart, if you look at inflation, yes, it's a function of, um, of shelter. I've made that clear, but it's also a function of um, commodity prices and commodity prices are, have rolled, rolled over about their year on year change is what matters and what drives the change in inflation. And those year on year price changes peaked about three or four months ago. What's going to happen has the inflation rate has dutifully followed that delta. So the inflation uh, follows the change in, in, um, in commodity prices. You're going to get that rollover for a couple of reasons. One, I mentioned the base effect in inflation. It's very, very hard to sustain those ever-increasing rates of inflation. So you have the base effect coming in. You have the commodity price basically has slowed coming in. And so you're going to get inflation rollover before the end of the summer. That's going to change everyone's math on the rate hikes. And I think that those rate hikes, as in the past, I think it's important to remind everybody, those rate hikes are not locked in stone, as January 26th in Canada will tell you that. Those are bets. People are making bets, and they're making bets on what they think is going to happen. What they think can happen will change as the data comes through. And I think it would not be surprised me at all that those expect, rate expectations will start to come off when inflation starts to come off. So let's also remember that we're still in the pandemic. In some people's minds, they want to be in the pandemic forever. Let's ignore those. In other people's minds, the pandemic is coming to an end. And what does that mean? It means a lot of the supply stuff that we've been worried about is going to 
end quite naturally. People are going to get back to work. The ISM came out again, it fell. And again, the major issue that producers are having with respect to growth, sales, and production is they aren't getting enough people in bums and seats to make their manufacturing and services companies tick properly, which is putting strains on their supply, which is keeping prices higher. We had one of the largest increases in labor market or non-farm payrolls last week or this week, whatever. People are going to get back to work, which is going to ease supply change, which is going to further put ease on those transitory inflation things, which in my view will again take the pressure off the Federal Reserve to raise rates by this extreme amount. And if you have that, you say, well, Richard, can the wage, can the labor market withstand higher inflation? Because I'm, I don't think it's transitory, but inflation won't be at seven, it'll be at four. And then the issue is, can the labor market withstand inflation that's high, but not extreme? And I would argue, yes, wages and wage growth are going higher because of demographic issue things. You have, and, and I think the US, and especially in the US, has an extremely strong household balance sheet. Debt to GDP is 30% lower than it was at the peak. And finally, the banks, which is where the error term, where it's, you know, where the rubber meets the road, are extremely, extremely solvent. You could say they're over collateralized. And we know that credit growth is growing in the household sector and the commercial and industrial loan sector. So this idea that the Fed is just going to raise rates with impunity without looking at the data as it comes out, I don't buy that. And I think that you're in a situation, weirdly, that you could actually have a Goldilocks scenario where you have inflation going low, real rates stayed relatively negative, households are okay, and there isn't any growth. Not to mention, just to put the cherry on top, that the second largest economy in the world, China, is massively, massively easing and is going to start helping with the unlocking of those supply chains. Because as soon as the Olympics are over, they're going to end this stupid zero COVID policy. So there's the other side of that. Um, and, you know, if you have that, you have margins stay okay, earnings growth be okay. And a situation where you, what you really do is you have the rotation out of the shit, which is what we're seeing now in the equity market with the, the QQQ down 10% year to date. And into things that make money and have strong margins, which is energy, banks, materials, consumer staples, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, who says we don't argue on this channel? Because I think that's a pretty cogent um, counter view to Keith's very eloquently put um, stance. I, I think I've been moderating this because I know you guys <laughs> uh, have, have different views on how this plays out. But correct me if I'm wrong, just to kind of wrap up the show here. I think, cause I think we were talking about this off air. I think you guys are still kind of coming to the same conclusion of like where, for example, the stock market is at the end of the year. Uh, I think you guys just have different views on, on the pathway there, which is Keith is kind of the view that you're going to have some in the, in the near term, you're going to have some volatility and a drawdown before we have easing. And I think Rich, your basically prognosis is that it's, yeah, it might be a little bit choppy, but for the most part, it's still a bullish setup for equities. Um, I mean, yeah, well, you guys, it's just the rotation. You guys still, I mean, you guys are still the rotation. The, I think we don't talk about. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, it's the rotation of of. But I, I mean, if we're just looking at strictly the S and P five hundred index, for example, uh, I believe that you guys are 
more so basically in the same camp that it finishes 2022 at its long-term historical return, which is what, 10% a year? Yeah, we bet on this. <laughs> what's the, would someone remind the listeners here, what's the, what's the next bet here for the Twinkie bet? Well, let's just, let's just, so first of all, the reason Rich is wrong most of the time with things, <laughs> and, and I'm right. So, but the difference between uh, Rich's view on, on, on markets in the world and in, in the view that I share with people, uh, I'm, I'm coming at a fewer from financial market perspective. And, and Rich is coming from an economic perspective. And, and both can be right. So, however, again, this is ISCAP, and we have a very strong view of this, and it will never change. There are going to be, there's always moments of time in the world where financial markets, they do not move in line with the real economy. So you can have economic data going in one direction, and financial markets are going in the opposite direction. And you can have the opposite of that of taking place as well. Uh, so, you know, what Richard shared with us, his view, all that is economic. So it, it, I'm hearing it. I'm just hearing, hey, economics this, economics that. The view that I'm sharing is that, you know what, financial markets, they're set up. They can come off pretty hard here. And then that gives policymakers cover not to do, not, not to raise rates. That's, that's what it is. So and I know it can be confusing for a lot of people if they're not in the world. But again, there, there's like we used to always, we used to like to play this game all the time. We'd say, hey, if you knew a year ago, that inflation was going to be at 7%, you know, where do you think this market would be and that market would be and so forth. And, and they rarely reconcile. So again, there's always a big difference between the two and that's what I share. And that's why Boom. Rich will be wrong with, with this in the near term. <laughs> I'm just well, saying energy, uh, banks and energy. I'm just saying. <laughs> someone, someone's going to be stuffing down some Twinkies here on the show. <laughs> So, but again, though, like I think, like one of the best. I, I just said, like this euro dollar market is this is this is really catching up here. And uh, but I think another one of the, the the great trades that are coming up here. I think I just saw the the BBC news reporter in the background. You guys remember that there a while a few years ago. Anyway, uh, but one one of the greatest trades I was involved was when oil spiked up to one forty six, one forty seven. I think it was back in oh five or six or something. Um, I want to see oil. I want it to see go vertical because boy, the, the opportunity then to short that thing, it's, it, it's there. It's a lot better. We talk about oil. Yeah. yeah we got, we got, it. We got, we'll, we, I think though, for time, we'll go on the next episode. Okay, with, fine. With that, maybe. All right. We got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Got, I want to hear, uh, Rich's next thoughts time, on the oil, oil market for next week's show. Um, cause I just added, added another property there in, in Alberta. So, uh, I'm, I'm probably more in Rich's, view camp here but we're gonna we're getting to that in the next show we just had a master class uh on economics and 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 financial markets uh so as always we appreciate the support i actually didn't give the usual plug which is all we ask is that you share this episode with one friend one person share this episode take the audio link from spotify or apple Podcasts or google Share with one person. Let's continue to grow the Looney Hour community. We appreciate your support. And as always, we will see you next week.